Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to this week's episode of the Legal Beagle Podcast. I am joined this week by Twyla Haggerty. Twyla just recently passed the Arizona bar exam. Twyla went to Arizona State University, the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. But here's what makes Twyla's story so unique. She took the bar completely online or remotely or virtually or however you want to say that. And we're going to talk to Twyla about that experience and about her journey through law school up to the point of taking this bar and, and now passing it. Welcome, Twyla. Thank you. So let's back up to the beginning. What made you decide to go to law school? Well, it's so it was one of those things that I would always come back to. Like my ever since I was like 12 years old, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be something else. I wanted to be a lawyer. I always came back to it. Um, so, and I always knew I was going to study political science because everyone said lawyers study political science. So that was all the information I needed. I did no further research. Um, so I studied political science, loved it. Um, but then I learned about kind of like the legal system and our political system. And I was like, this isn't something I want to participate in. Like, I don't want to be a part of this. So um, after college, I, I graduated in 2012, so um, I had a lot of odd jobs. <laughs> um, and for about six months, I worked at the Boys and Girls Club, um, and I loved it. And there was this group, there was this little family of four boys who were so sweet, and every day they'd run up to me, and they'd hug me, and they wanted to talk about school and sports and stuff, and they were so, so sweet. And they had a single mom. I grew up with a single mom. Um, and every day she would pick them up, she always looked so tired. And I would just think about like, what are the chances that like one of these boys are going to get in trouble and she's not going to be able to help them. Um, so in that moment, meeting this family, I was like, oh, this is why I want to be a lawyer. Like I want to help people. I want to help families like mine who don't have the energy, um, who kind of are, are just holding on and then a crisis happens. So that's what sent me to law school. Um, but in that time I went, I was in sales. I loved sales. Um, and then I took the LSAT. So That's did you, got to law school. where did you do your undergrad? ASU. Okay. So you're a double devil, just like me. I'm a double. Yeah. <laughs> Arizona so, native. I was born, I was born, I grew up in Tucson and then I moved up to Tempe to go to ASU and then never went back to Tucson. Gotcha. So when you finished your undergrad back in 2012, is that when you finished or when you started? When I finished. Oh, you had like a, a big chunk of time where you kind of were doing other things. Yeah. Did you always have it in the back of your mind? I, I'm going to figure out a way to go to law school. Kind. I mean, it, like I said, it's always been something I came back to. Um, but then after, once I got a job in sales, I loved sales and I, the parts of being a lawyer that I wanted kind of like being strategic, solving problems, um, helping people. I was able to do that through sales. I was working in advertising sales. I was working with small businesses. Um, so kind of the, that part of like being a part of somebody's story and helping somebody, um, achieve their goals. I was able to do that through sales. Um, and then I had a really bad quarter. Um, I was convinced I was going to get fired the next day, even though looking back, like they never fire salespeople. Like <laughs> it's hard to get fired from a sales job. Um, but I remember thinking like, what, what, do, what am I going to do if I get fired? Um, and then I was like, I would be a lawyer. Like I'd go, I'd go to law school. Um, and then that's when I, it really clicked. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I actually want to be a lawyer. Um, and I would think about like, am I willing to gamble a house that I want to be a lawyer? Um, that this is something that's going to fulfill me. And, um, I was thinking about that a lot. And then I decided, yeah, I'm willing to gamble the price of a, of a humble home <laughs> to, 
to be a lawyer because with debt and everything, it would be about the price of a house. I'm glad you bring that up because I think a lot of people think about the academic side of going to law school, which is rigorous and tough. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But what people I think fail to appreciate is the the choice that you're faced with. And I was I looked at it the exact same way. Financially, does this make sense? I was leveraging at that point because I went to school later uh, in life as well. I had a career before law school and I was essentially leveraging my college the, the college savings for my kids. And I'm saying, look, I'm going to put this into my attempt to go to law school. Can I make it back so that by the time they are in college, I can afford to assist them. And, and but you're right. It is the price of a, of a small home. And, and I think people fail to appreciate the, the financial stress you're placing on yourself when you go to law school, because it's real. I mean, the loans are real. The cost is real. It is not inexpensive. When you took the LSAT, I know you said born and raised here, native in Arizona. Did you always want to go to ASU or were there other options? Were you, did you apply elsewhere? Yeah. So I, I mean, ASU, I, I've never really pictured myself leaving Arizona. I've always been open to it, but I've never really seen it happening. Um, so when I took the LSAT, I, ASU was definitely my first choice. Um, I ended up not getting into ASU right away. I went to Arizona Summit. Um, and at the time they were doing a part-time program. So I was able to stay in sales um, and I did my first, it ended up being two years, but it credit wise, it was one year at Arizona Summit. Um, and I was able to do that debt-free because I got a scholarship to Summit and then I transferred over to ASU. Well, I, I swear folks, we didn't plan this. I just met Twyla for the first time here on this podcast. But if you listen to last week's episode where I talked about the ASU endowment, the scholarship that we just uh, finalized with the College of Law, you heard my story and I talked about how I didn't get into ASU. I went to Phoenix School of Law, which is what Summit was called before it changed its name to Arizona Summit and then transferred over to ASU as well. So Twyla and I have that commonality without even realizing it. So that's really cool that that's kind of your same story like mine. Yeah, yeah. So you transfer over to ASU, you finish law school. Well, let me stop before I say you finish law school. During law school, had you identified what you wanted to do, what kind of law you wanted to practice? Yeah, I, I generally, um, I really like zeroed in on being a public defender and that was all I saw. Um, that was all I wanted to do. I wanted to do public defense. Um, I wanted to defend kids. I like, that was all I saw. Um, and I like, I mean, kind of, we will, we'll get to that. I'm sure that right now the public defender's office is on a hiring freeze. So I have to open up my eyes a little more. Um, but I clerked for a family law attorney and, um, for my second and third year of law school. And one of the things I really admired about her practice was the counseling aspect. Um, that she really, she really was helping people in this big turning point in their lives, um, really getting a new start. So I really loved that part of it. And I realized that it's, I want to, I want to help people in this moment that they never thought they would get in, that they hoped they would never get to. And here they are and have to kind of redirect or figure out what to do next. So I've, I, I saw public defense. I still want to be a public defender, but I, I'm definitely more open to to different types of law. Um, and what I, the reason I want to be a lawyer is I want to support people through these terrible times in their lives. Well, it's, it's actually really fantastic to hear you say that because I've thought about the path that I took post-law school. And then I've been asked the question, what advice would you give to those coming out of law school? 
And when I came out of law school, I wanted to litigate. I wanted to get in the courtroom. I wanted to really be part of the, the justice system and not just do transactional law, not just push papers across my desk every day. And I'm told over and over that the best option or the best path to getting that experience is through public defense. I have a really good friend, uh, Pat McGroder, who did just that. He came out of law school, went right into the PD's office, and I can't remember. He told me like dozens of trial experience, uh, trials under his belt, all this experience in the courtroom. He's very comfortable walking in there. I'll tell you, Twyla, that you know, having done personal injury, which is what our firm does and has done from the beginning, it's not as often that we get in the courtroom. We're actually really pushing for more trial work. I actually just had one scheduled in February. It got pushed to May because of COVID. But it's really hard to get these cases in front of a jury, not for lack of trying, but just the dynamics of these cases don't allow them to find their way into a courtroom. You'll always have courtroom experience working in the criminal side of things. And so, uh, you know, I applaud you for wanting to do that, wanting to embrace that, wanting to help and be involved. It's noble work. I have a good friend who does uh, public defense in Pinal County. And he eventually wants to be a judge. I went to law school with him. And, you know, he gets criticized a lot for the work that he does because the common things that he hears are, look, you're, you're defending criminals. How could you do this? How could you defend someone who hurt someone or, or, you know, caused other person, you know, caused another person, all of this pain. And his response is simple. And that's that everyone deserves a defense. There's a constitution that allows for that. And it's the system doesn't always get it right. And we yeah. shouldn't ever get it wrong. And as you know, I got to work for some victim advocate organizations during internships in, in school. There are a lot of people that have been wrongly convicted or have been given sentences that just really weren't in line with the offense that w- was committed. And if it's not for the good work of people like you that want to go out and help defend them, they just get run over by the system. So I, I really applaud the fact that you want to get into that work. And I know I'm well aware that they're on a hiring freeze, but I hope that when things open back up, there's an opportunity for you because there's not enough people raising their hand like you saying, I want to go do that work. Thank you. Yeah. You got it. So you finished law school. Mm -hmm. Now, was that in May of of this year? Yeah, it was. Okay. Things were in disarray worldwide in May of, of 2020. What were you thinking as chatter started to emerge about the bar being canceled or the bar not happening in July being postponed? What, what was going through your head? Well, so I, I actually signed up to take the bar kind of late. All of my friends signed up as soon as the application was open. Um, and I waited too long. And then, um, at first it looked like Arizona was going to be the only place that had the bar. So school sent out an email. They're like, everybody from the entire world, from the entire universe is going to be coming to Arizona to take the bar. So hurry up and sign up. So I panicked and signed up. Um, so at first I was really confident it was going to happen. Um, like our, our cases were looking really good. Our COVID cases were looking really good. So I wasn't really worried. Um, and then as it gets closer, like in June, our COVID cases start going up. Um, and then I see like all these students are saying like, cancel the bar, cancel the bar. And I'm part of me is like, yeah, cancel the bar. But then also the financial side is I only had enough money to get me through August. Um, so I, I couldn't afford to not take the bar. Um, but then also I was like really scared about taking the bar and then getting COVID. 
Um, so as our cases were creeping up, I was so sure they were going to cancel the bar. Like I saw um, editorials about canceling the bar. I saw like stuff on Twitter about canceling the bar, um, petitions. Um, so I was sure it was going to get canceled. So at the beginning of July, I believe they sent out the email that was like, we're going to open up a remote bar. Um, so I was like, okay, awesome. I'm going to do that. And I, I weighed the pros and cons of, of doing it in October. Um, one was that it was one of the pros is that it was going to be half, half as long as the, the regular bar that we do. It's going to be, um, six hours instead of 12 hours, six hours over two days instead of 12 hours over two days. Um, and it was going to be online. Um, so it was going to be, there wasn't going to be anybody around. Um, but one of the cons is that it's not a UBE, um, exam. So I would only be licensed in Arizona. Um, and that was one that I thought of for a long time. Cause I was like, oh, well maybe I want to go somewhere. Um, but I, I've never really been drawn anywhere. <laughs> like I want to stay in Arizona. Um, my boyfriend wants to stay in Arizona. And the only reason I'd ever leave Arizona is like, if he wanted to leave. So, um, I was comfortable taking it and only getting, um, a score in Arizona. Um, so I, I decided quickly to, to take it in October. I got a campaign job right away. Um, and then when it happened in July and all my friends who took it, they said that it was like really spaced out. They felt really safe. I was like, oh man, maybe I should have taken it in July, <laughs> but I was so, so sure it was going to get canceled. Um, and I could, I can handle being broke. Like I've been broke. So like, it's fine, but I would have lost my mind if it was canceled, like the week of the bar. And it's like, now I need to get a job and I could have been working for the past couple of weeks. So, um, for me, it was mostly a, tr um, a financial decision that. I was really scared it was going to get canceled and I was going to be destitute and I hadn't even taken the bar. <laughs> were you, were you put in a position where you had to either choose to do it in person or do it online? You couldn't sign up for in person and then at the last minute cancel and do it online. Was that given, uh, was that choice given to you? I, I don't believe it was. Um, I think we had like, I am trying to remember back. I think we had like a narrow timeline to decide whether we were going to do it in July or October. And if you would have decided like the week of October or not on um, the week of October, the week of the, the bar exam, I think you had to wait until February to take it. Um, and then I was also thinking like, well, what if I get COVID that week, like the, the week of the bar and I can't take it in July. So, um, I decided to take it in October. Yeah. Had you started bar prep back in like June, as you were kind of debating this, or were you, were you waiting to make a final decision before you launched into your bar prep? I mean, I, I thought I was going to take it in July. So I took it, um, on the start date, which I think was like maybe the last week of May I started bar prep. Um, so I'd been bar prep was my job for like a week, like a month and a half or something at that point. Um, and it, it like, as I, I was more convinced it was going to get canceled, the July bar was going to get canceled. I like was losing enthusiasm for studying. I was like, what's the point? It's going to be canceled. Like, what do, what do I need to do this for? And then I was getting more anxious about money that I was like, if it gets postponed till September, I can't, I can't afford to wait that long. So, um, kind of the, the anxiety about the money is what really pushed me to take it in October. When you paused that bar prep and then came back to it after working in a, in a kind of full-time capacity, did you forget everything or, or did you feel like you retained most of the stuff you had started to prepare for and learn right at the end of law school? Uh, well, I never really stopped bar prep. I slowed down a lot. Um, by the time I stopped studying full-time, I, I did Themis. So I got to 60% of my program. 
Um, and then by the time it was the bar, I got to 80% of the program. So like over two months, I did maybe 20%. So I slowed down significantly, but I never really stopped. Um, and I was really scared of forgetting everything that like, I would forget the elements of contract formation or something, but they were up there and they're, they're there still, I think. Yeah. I, I've always Don't said any questions though. Well, I won't. More questions. But here's what, here's what I believe. I think you right now in your life, right where you sit, are more equipped to understand a wide breadth of the law. Whereas me, someone who has now spent eight years working in one area, I can really talk to you about negligence and get into it with you. But if you ask me about real property, eh, I probably couldn't remember anything. I mean, I just, but right after the bar exam, you feel so full of information that you know a little about a lot. And yeah. then once you get into practice, you learn, you learn a lot about a little. It's, it's really interesting how that changes once you, once you start working, but all right. So take me to the bar exam itself. So what day of the week was it on? It was on a Monday and a Tuesday. Okay. Um, and I, the weekend before, so I stopped studying the Friday before the bar exam that weekend. I was like, I got what I got. I need to relax. Um, so weekend before, like we just kind of like hung out and like watched a bunch of Star Trek or something. <laughs> um, so the, the Monday and that weekend I was kind of like, I'm going to fail. Like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't go. I can't do it. Um, so I, I woke up, I, I took it at, at school. Um, I reached out to school. I asked them if there was a space that I could take the bar exam. They had some really strict parameters. Um, but I was like, I've never heard of a space like this before. <laughs> like, so luckily at school, they, um, they had some offices. It was me and three other, three other people were taking it at school. They cleared out some offices, put up some like parchment paper and stuff to, to really hit all the parameters and, um, I was able to take it there. So I live about a mile away from school. My boyfriend dropped me off both days. Um, but then I, I was done at noon. So I had to walk home. <laughs> he was at work. Um, but yeah, I, I took it at school, got up. I didn't. So one of the rules is you can't leave the screen. So, um, the, the morning of the bar exam, I didn't drink any water. Uh, I didn't drink any coffee. I didn't want to create any situation that I wouldn't be focused on the exam. So, so I, I want to, I want to um, ask you this question because my wife, I told my wife I was interviewing you and she said, can you, she's like, I, she's not an attorney, but I told her my understanding was you couldn't get up from your screen. She's like, are they, were they watching you? Did you have your camera on like we do right here? I did. And, um, early on. So I, in law school and I would take exams, I would kind of like, you know, do this kind of thing, look away and stuff. But um, the rules is you can't look away. So when I was studying, I started tr to train myself that whenever I needed to think, I needed to look right at the camera and close my eyes. <laughs> I wanted to create no, no possibility that they could think I'm looking at something else or that they could think I'm referencing something. So when I was studying, every time I felt myself like kind of go, like, do like not dozing off, but like kind of going off, I'd like look right at the screen and close my <laughs> eyes. <laughs> like, you will not disqualify me. <laughs> like, so I, I really train myself not to look up and, and kind of look around. And every time I caught myself almost doing it, I went right back to the screen. Can you tell me some, some more parameters you had to take the test uh, under? Like, I didn't know, are you, I know you said you elected to go to law school and take it in one of the offices. They kind of helped uh, retrofit for you, but did you have the option to take it from your house, your apartment, your wherever, or do you ha did you have to go to a space like where you went to take it? So they, they didn't say we couldn't take it at home but it sounded really impossible. <laughs> so I have a dog and I 
cat and they were definitely going to interrupt me during the thing, during it. Um, luckily I live by myself. So it's not like I would have somebody coming in because one of the rules is nobody can come in. Like nobody can come into your screen or anything. Um, there can't be anything identifying in the background because it's a, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? They don't know who you are when they're grading it. So there, there can't be anything that identifies you behind. Um, and I was like, well, like my whole life is a mess. Like there's stuff about me everywhere. So I knew that, that I wasn't going to be able to, to satisfy that. Um, there couldn't be any noise. I live in an apartment. There's always noise. Um, like the way the lighting was set up, it had to be on your face. Um, there couldn't be a window behind you. There couldn't be light behind you because it would back backlight you. Um, so it just felt impossible to do it at my house. Um, so I, I was very thankful that ASU created the space for us. Um, something I heard a lot of people doing was like renting hotel rooms, renting Airbnbs, just looking for a very barren space. When you, when you started the exam, I imagine that it was still timed like the, the bar exam would be. So you sit down like you are right now. Let's just imagine you're there. I don't want to give you flashbacks, but let's just imagine you're there and you <laughs> yeah. start, is it multiples for the first three hours? Is that what you're doing? Or was it writing or how, what did the first day look like? I was trying to remember this for you. <laughs> I think we did MPT first, the multi-state performance test first. Okay. Um, and that was the first hour and a half. And then we got a break. Um, and then we did the MEs, the multi-state um, essay exam second. And we had three of them, I believe. And that was the second 90 minutes of the first day. Um, and then the first day was done. Um, and then the second day we had 50 multiple choice days in the first 90 minute section and then 50 multiple choice questions in the second 90 minute session. How much of a break did you get between those 90 minute sessions? Um, I think it was like 30 minutes. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a fair amount to just kind of like take a breath for a minute. Yeah. But when you got into the MPT, when I, and I'm thinking back to when I took that both in Arizona and California, they gave us by hand a packet of information that we then opened. It was sealed and we opened it and then we started to read through it. And then obviously you, I typed everything, the memo, I think I had to write a memorandum and I typed it on my computer. But if you're having to look at the computer, how does that work? Are you, did they give you, was it all just electronic? Like you just got everything was, in? Yeah, all electronic. It was miserable. Uh, <laughs> and I, I knew that I had to start preparing for it. Um, so I, what I would do, I have a Mac. I'm not sure how any other computer works, but um, the way I would study for the MPT, because I knew I wasn't gonna be able to print anything out. Uh, and also for the, um, for the exam, they were recording your screen. Um, so they saw everything. So I knew what the, what the exam was gonna look like because it was the same software that we used for our exams at ASU. Um, so I knew that there was gonna be like one panel that I could take notes and the other panel I could look at the, um, look at the materials. Um, and there was a highlighting tool, but the MPT materials, they weren't, they weren't a file. They were a picture. <laughs> so I couldn't, you couldn't use the highlighting tool. So what I started doing when I real, when I was going to take the, um, the online bar is I started practicing by taking notes, anything that I would highlight for the MPT, I typed the notes on the notepad. Um, so I really started training myself to do this quickly, um, and really like alternating it from on, on paper to on the screen. Cause I, I mean, I've, I've always been like a really aggressive test taker and I like circle everything, cross things out, like put arrows everywhere. So I really had to figure out how I was going to do that without a pen. Um, so luckily I was able to kind of train myself to anything that I would highlight or underline. I typed out into the notepad. Um, and then I could, I, I could use the notes while I was typing my actual exam. 
What an experience. Did you walk away from day one thinking I did okay? Or did you walk away thinking maybe you thought you killed it? Maybe you thought you did terrible? What was your feeling takeaway after Monday? I, I felt, I, I knew I failed it. I was convinced <laughs> I failed. Um, and I was convinced I failed the MPT because I'd been really struggling with the MPTs. And this one seemed too easy that I thought they tricked me. I was like, they got me. Like, they got me. I missed it. I missed the point. I failed it all. And the first MEE was actually a subject that I studied the week before. So it's like, oh, oh, okay. One, one is okay. But then also I like always second guessed myself and I was like, oh no, but I, I did not feel confident walking out of it at all. Okay. So then you, you somehow muster the confidence to get back up and do it again on Tuesday. Tuesdays, all multiples, correct? Multiples correct. for 90 minutes, multiples for 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Is it just you know, the question pops up, you answer it. Can you go back and, and change answers or, or is it once you hit it, you, you have to move on? Yeah, you can go back and change. And it, one of the things that I actually liked about doing it online is I could flag questions um, and it would keep track of the questions that I flagged. So I could go back quickly um, and then I can skip questions and, and go back and forth. So I liked that about it, that I, I was able to reference quickly the ones that I said I wanted to come back to. And the same with multiple choice questions. I'm used to like having a, a workbook and I can like circle things, cross things out, put arrows and stuff um, that again, I, I really, I trained myself to use the notepad to type out anything that I would have underlined or circled so I could really zero in on the issue quickly. Do you, do you think of yourself as a better writer or a better multiple choice test taker? Meaning, and be careful, Twyla, because future employers may watch this podcast. But I've <laughs> always said I'm a terrible writer, but I can just I can take multiple choice like no one's business. I do so well at multiple choice questions. Where where do you fall in that spectrum? Um, I think when I I think when I started law school, I was a stronger writer. Um, so I really focused on multiple choice questions, and now I think I'm a better multiple choice question uh, test taker because I I think I'm I can figure out the issue quickly, um, and I can figure out like the, um, like the differences, I, I got really good at identifying which element is missing from the fact pattern and then figuring out that's usually the answer, like figuring out that kind of stuff. So, um, I learned a lot of techniques for multiple choice because I really struggled with it at the beginning. Um, and now I think I'm probably a stronger multiple choice test taker. Did the, so when the 90 minutes elapses, does the computer just shut off? Like how did that, cause when we were in person, pencils down, right? And everyone had hands mm-hmm. off the keyboards. That's how they did it. It was like, you literally, and they very, they beat that into your head before the test started. Like once your time is up, if you continue to type, you will be disqualified. So you had to like take your hands off the computer. I mean, it was almost like, like you, you went back. <laughs> how did it work with you? Like when, when the 90 minutes was up, how did, what happened to the screen or how did it disable you from continuing to work? If that was even something you were doing. So I also got trained to, to, go back really quick. Um, so the screen went totally blue. It was like, you're out of time. Um, but also I didn't, I wanted to make sure there was no questions about me cheating or anything. So I picked my hands up next to my face. Like they're right here. They're right here. I swear. I'm here. <laughs> I swear, don't. I swear. <laughs> That's really funny. So day two ends. Did you feel like, did you feel the same as you did day one where you're like, I don't, I still don't think I did well. Or did you feel more confident after the multiples? I was, again, I was sure I failed. Um, I, I was so sure that I failed the bar exam that it, it wasn't a possibility that I passed. Like I was so sure that I failed. Um, and 
one thing that made me feel better is so many people were like, oh no, you didn't fail. So in my mind, I was like, well, these people are going to be real surprised. Like I have a lot of people who were surprised I failed and that would make me feel better that like the whole world would be like, what? She failed? Fyla, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how long did you have to wait for your results? So, <laughs> so they, they told us, um, they're like, oh, since it's not UBE, we're going to get you your scores quicker. And I was like, sweet. Um, like you can tell me I failed sooner. Great. Um, but I, the, like the frequently asked questions is said, um, mid November to beginning of December. Um, and as we got closer to mid November, I thought we might get a more precise date, but we didn't. Uh, and I was checking every day to be like, oh, maybe this is the day they told us the date it would come out. Um, and it never, it never changed. Um, and I know like for the, for February and July, they have nine weeks. It's like nine weeks before you get the exam. I was like, they're going to send it to us eight weeks and six days. <laughs> like, okay, technically we got it to us sooner. Like, okay, great. Um, and so we, I think it was eight weeks that we found out. And I, I was at work or I was working at home and one of my friends texted me. Um, she said, congratulations. Oh my gosh. Like, I hope I'm not the one telling you. And I was like, what is the only thing that somebody else would know to congratulate me for that? I don't know. And I like started panicking. And I was like, oh my God. And then she, I was like, did it happen? Did you get it? Like, did I pass the bar? Um, and she sent me the, the press release and my name was there and I kept refreshing it. I was like, are you sure? Like, and then there was like the issue in Kentucky where 10 people found out they passed the bar and then they were told that they didn't. And I was like, that's me. Like, they're going to email me, but they didn't, they haven't yet. Um, but it was, they didn't tell us that it was coming that day. And I had no idea to even like be looking at my email until somebody texted me. And I was like, oh. I passed the bar exam. That's so great. Congratulations again for passing <laughs> the bar exam. But I thought I was under the impression like you, that you guys would get the results within a couple of weeks, not eight weeks. I mean, it, you're, yeah. you waited, you waited almost as long as everyone else has to wait, which is just <laughs> grueling. That wait is so yeah. terrible. I yeah. remember when I took the Arizona bar, we, uh, guy that I met in law school and I had started our firm. We started a firm together for a year and then we went different directions, but when we got the results, we were all together and we knew they had published when they were going to come out because it was just, everything was business as usual. And they told us the Friday it was going to come out, which I think it's funny. They do it on Friday and late on Friday. So you can't call the, the admissions <laughs> office, but they, they sent out the list, the press release, just like uh, you're referencing. And his name is Brian Holmes. So it starts with an H. So it's an alphabetical order. Mm -hmm. And so Haggerty would be right there with, with Holmes, right? right? And it's H. the first H. I think. Right. My name is Negretti. So it's much further down. So <laughs> I couldn't look. I, I was literally like, not panicking, but I felt like you. I felt like I did not pass it. I certainly wasn't deserving of a passing score. And so I was pretty confident I was not going to see my name on the list. Well, his name shows up and he's scrolling down. And I was over on the, the couch, just kind of like rocking like back and forth <laughs> thinking I didn't pass this exam. And then he sees my name and, and it, was, uh, it was quite the celebration for both of us. But California does it much, much different. California, when you take the bar exam, and I don't know if they're still doing it this way because I know they've gone to an online format as well for those that weren't able to, to sit in person. When you take the California bar, they send you a, an email the day the results are out, like a Friday, but only you can see those. They don't publish it until the following Monday. So it's, you have the weekend to know whether you passed or failed before the world knows whether you passed yeah. or failed. And it literally is, I kid you not, 
on your screen, you log in with like, you have an ID and you log in with the ID number and it pops up green for pass or red for fail. It is like that, like the whole thing, like the whole screen. And so I didn't want to know because I'd already gotten licensed in Arizona and we were already practicing. We started our firm and we were, we hit the ground running hard and we were taking cases. And so I didn't want to know. I just, I was like, well, if I don't pass California, I, I gave it my best shot because I took it with, I mean, I took it with thousands of people, but what the, the group that I knew that took it, there were, I think eight or nine of us that took it, that sat for the California bar right after the Arizona bar. And you know, I, there were some smart people taking that bar and it's a hard, it was a three day bar. It was, it's grueling mm -hmm. three days of six hours each. So it's a lot of, yeah. you know, of work. But my wife said she was just, cause I got the email Friday and it says, you can check your bar results are there. And she was, I was like, we were making dinner and she's like, what are you going to check? And I was like, no, my daughter's freaking out. And she's like, dad, you need to check. And I'm like, I mean, if I passed, I passed, we'll find out Monday. And they took the number from me and they logged in to the computer. So imagine you and I are sitting here like we're, we're doing this podcast and I'm on the other side. So I can't see the computer. And I think I was making dinner and they, she did the best poker face ever. She just kind of was like, Hmm, <laughs> not excited, not a smile, nothing. And then I was like, Oh, see, I told you I didn't pass. And she's like, she flipped the, the computer around. She's like, you passed. And so I was fortunate <laughs> enough to, to pass that exam. But I remember like it was yesterday, those feelings, that, that anxiety, that like real, like the heart palpitations, the like nervousness that comes along with it. And then, then you go back and check it again. Like, I don't know if you did this, but I was like checking <laughs> yeah. the list again. I was like, is oh, my right name up. really, yeah, is yeah. my name really there? It was, it's a pretty amazing feeling. So, uh, yeah. you know, look, I, it is strange times for sure this last year. And I know that we're not through the woods yet with COVID, but it is impressive to hear how you persevered through this because that is not easy to have to pivot from all your work leading up through the graduation of law school is I'm going to sit for the exam, you know, six weeks after the end of law school. And then I wait and it's going to be in a traditional sense and, and you're getting ready for that experience and everything changes on you and you have to make a decision. Do I do it online? Do I, do I gamble with the fact that it could get canceled? And then you had to adjust and conform to all these really strange parameters that really changed the way that, that you experienced the bar exam. Have you visited or talked to any of your friends that took it in person about your experience versus their experience? Um, not, not particularly. I, I guess like one thing, one thing that helped me a lot through it, um, was like the bar exam is terrible. Like it's a racist and classist system. So like preach, like, <laughs> I part, I think that was one, one thing that I was like, you know what, I don't care what a racist and classist system thinks of me anyway. Um, so I think that helped calm me down a lot. Um, that I, I felt like the bar exam is unjust in any situation and <laughs> like it's uncomfortable in any situation. And like, it's, it's miserable no matter what I, my experience walking out being convinced I failed seems to be the same with everybody. Um, so I, I feel I mean, that gave me a lot of, that grounded me a lot through the process. Um, like when I was working full time and studying and I was really tired and miserable, but I was like, you know what, this is miserable for everybody. Like we're all, nobody's having a good time right now. <laughs> like, and that, I think that kept me grounded a lot, um, to keep going. Now, now having taken the bar, because I, I will tell you, I thought some of the same things you, you think still do think some of the same things you think about the bar, 
but I was, when I was in it, I was like frustrated by the entire experience, not just the studying and the, the tiredness and all of that that comes with it, but just even the way it's set up and how antiquated it is and really how it doesn't really apply to what we'll do in practice. Mm-hmm. And I was a big believer at the time, I've changed my opinion on this, that the bar should be eliminated. Would you agree as you sit here today, after having passed it and, and having taken it, you took a real bar exam, would you still, would you say, I, I think they should get rid of the bar exam? Um, I, on a scale of one to 10, I'm like at maybe a seven that they should get rid of the bar exam. And I, I can get on board with the bar exam if it was like all MPT. Like if I think that's the only part of the bar exam that really measures whether you're, you're, you could practice well. Um, otherwise it's all like law that doesn't exist. Like we live in this pretend fairyland um, of like law that's made up and doesn't exist anymore. But I think the MPT is still relevant um, because it's like take it's a closed universe. So it really is whether you can analyze and apply a law to a set of facts. Um, so I think if, if we could adjust the bar to just be MPTs, I can get behind it. Um, but I like I don't feel proud that I passed the bar. It's mostly like a relief. Like, I don't think I did anything profound. I'm more like I'm more proud of like my graduation paper that I wrote, like um, than passing the bar. I feel like the bar really is just a measure of whether you purchased a commercial study plan and whether you completed the commercial study plan. Yeah. Um, that I, I think I, I could get behind the bar if it was like, just like two days of MPTs, just facts, law, apply it, write a paper or something. So along those lines, as I've thought a lot about how they could re, I don't want to say reinvent how they could reestablish the legitimacy of a bar exam and what it really is, is trying to test and what it's really trying to eliminate as it relates to the practice of law. Do you think that there should be this year or maybe it's not even defined as one year, but a, a certain amount of time that, that lawyers have to kind of work as an apprentice or do like what they, in the, in the medical field, they have to do, a certain amount of time, like a residency before they can practice medicine. They have to work under another doctor. They're, they're, they're hands on patients and they're doing all that, but they don't get the real experience until after that residency. And then they take their exams, their boards to, to get licensed. Would you say it should be a combination of the MPT and some sort of training in the profession? Or would you say, no, I think just the MPT is, is sufficient. Um, I mean, I honestly, I'm still like getting started on my legal career. I haven't had a legal job yet. I've been working on a, a campaign. Um, so my my opinion is not very informed. I'm really like thinking this as we're speaking. <laughs> so I may change my mind in 15 minutes. Sure. But um, it seems to be like that. That's what a lot of people that I know, that's their experience after law school anyway. They do work under, under somebody. They're being supervised. Uh, maybe not like supervised like, somebody has to approve all their work, but they have a supervisor. So, um, I mean, I guess if, if that were the system, it would limit whether people could go into fellowships after law school or whether people wanted to go into clerkships or if people, um, you know, kind of the different options if somebody wanted to go right into policy. Like I have friends at the, um, in the democratic caucus, um, that they like did that right out of law school that, um, I, I imagine that maybe people who went to law school not to be lawyers, but they wanted to like, I, a lot of times I would think about like, 
how great my sales career would be after law school. Sure. <laughs> like, um, but I, I, I'm not sure if like an apprenticeship would be quite right. I guess in that case, if like now I'm like back on the bar, like back pro bar, <laughs> like sure, do whatever you want afterwards. Um, but I do feel, I guess I, I feel like the bar exam, it really at this point, it's just a measure of whether you purchased a commercial study plan and completed the commercial study plan, which with um, the October bar, there was a 44% pass rate um so like I was just thinking about like all the people who like they have families at home they're distracted and like things are different now and they they purchased the commercial bar program but they couldn't finish it and that's all like that's all the bar studies are like test in my mind that um I don't remember where I was going with this but I I'm not sure what would be the best solution I mean I in some ways I'm like we already did a three-year vetting process like ASU thinks I'll be a good lawyer. Like, right. But let's go back to your experience at Arizona Summit. There, because mm -hmm. I started at PSL, same school. Yeah. There's a reason they're defunct. There's a reason yeah. they went out of business. I mean, we can probably agree that we are the outliers. And I don't mean that in any derogatory way towards anyone that went to law school, but they maybe were letting in people that weren't equipped to pass a bar. They got through law school. Yeah. I went to, I went to school. I, I still have friends that are not attorneys, not practicing attorneys, but they have the JD because they went through law school, they stayed at PSL and finished there, but they took the bar two or three times and couldn't pass it. So yeah. I, as much as I, I do agree that it is, get the commercial study plan, plug into that commercial study plan, take the bar exam. There is one extra component and that's, can you take all of that information and somehow store it in your mind, even for a short period of time, and then regurgitate it when necessary on the various questions that are asked, whether those are MPT, multiples or the the essays right and yeah and so i think there's some value in saying look this is this is the idea of a bar can you get over that hurdle right can yeah. you take the step you need to take to get there because when i when i was taking it and i was very frustrated and i was sharing these feelings with anyone who would listen <laughs> someone pulled me aside a yeah a practicing <laughs> attorney pulled me aside and he said look jonathan i understand where you're at but I want to give you one thing to think about. And that one thing was, if you can take and pass a bar exam, anything you will do in practice will not seem overwhelming to you. That has rung true every single major issue that has come up in my practice of law. We've had thing, you know, five fires, hear. right? We have, we have <laughs> like crazy things that happen all of a sudden and you've got to get ready for an oral, oral argument or you're having to quickly, you know, depose someone or you're having to scramble to get things ready for a hearing or a trial or whatever, all of that pales in comparison to the bar exam. Once you do that mountain of work, it's almost like this is a bad example. So for those of you that climb, don't get mad at me when I say this, but passing the bar is like climbing Everest. Once you've done Everest, there's no, there's no other mountain in the world that you need to climb to prove yourself. That's kind of the bar exam. Once you do it, there really isn't anything else that's so overwhelming that you can't conquer it, that you can't figure it out. And you, you have that confidence. You're like, look, I, I did purchase that commercial study program, but I plugged in, I was able to consume the information and I was able to then regurgitate it when, when necessary. I agree. There's a lot of problems with the bar, a lot of problems. And I, I think I love the MPT thought that you have, because I think that is probably really actually work that you will do. And it's, it's probably the closest thing you do in the bar exam to what will actually ever be practical. You're never going to be asked an MBE question. You're never going to be asked. <laughs> yeah. People are going to say, um, 
Twyla, can you can you take me through the formation of a contract and in you know 30 minutes write me a quick memo on that? It's just never gonna happen. <laughs> you may in your head run through, you know, all the different components or elements of a contract and know some of the defenses and know some of the things that you can use, but you're never gonna do it in that capacity. So it's not really valid in the way that they test it. But I love this idea and it's been offered up by others, the idea of having this mandatory time where you have to work under the advisement of a practicing attorney who has you know, a certain number of years of experience. And I, I don't know how to define that, but whatever that is, unless you're going to take a different route, right? You're going to get into a fellowship or do something more um, you know, policy driven where it may not be the active practice of law, but what what I think is dangerous, and, and I'm speaking against myself because I did it, is I hung, I hung a shingle the minute I left law school, passed the bar, and got my, my, past score, my passing score in, in, I took it in July, as, no, I took it in February, got my passing score in May because I graduated early. I was practicing in June. By the time my classmates who had finished in May were in bar prep, I was already taking clients and it's a scary thing to do without a lot of experience. Now, what I had was the wherewithal because like you, I'd worked in the real world. I wasn't afraid to ask people for help. I wasn't afraid to go to other attorneys that I kind of chose to be my mentors. I, I don't think I ever asked them that, but I just kind of made them my mentors and I would just go to them on silly questions, dumb things. And I would just say, look, I'm doing this now. How would you handle this? Or where can I point me to where I can find information? Because I do think what law school teaches you, not only how to see both sides to various issues and how to really argue different points, but also how to find information. And yeah. so you may not, you may not practice in a certain area, but you know where to go find the information to educate you on that subject, should it arise in your, your practice. And that's what I think yeah. is really, really eye-opening about law school is, is you're just, you become like this almost like this conduit between this huge library of information and, and the, the general public, because they're asking yeah. questions and you're like, okay, let me see if I can figure that out. And throughout your profession, I, I guarantee you this, I can guarantee a couple things for you, Twyla. One, you're going to have friends and family call you from here on out, ask you the weirdest, they may have already started, but they're going to ask you the weirdest <laughs> legal questions. And they're going to think that because you're an attorney, you know, everything. It doesn't, it, they're going to say, I have this landlord tenant dispute. And they're going to, you're like, I don't do that work. And they're going to be like, well, but you're an attorney. What should I do? And they're just going to want this free advice from here yeah. on out. Cause you're now their connection to the legal world, which is, which is kind of fun. The other thing I think is this profession is what you make of it. Mm -hmm. And so if you have this like desire to go do great things and help people, I know you started out this podcast talking about that. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose mm -hmm. sight of chasing that dream for the sake of some monetary gain. And I think too many people, and I, now I speak from experience with a lot of friends that went to law school that had real, real like desire to change the world. And they got stuck in a big firm working to become a partner and forgot who they were. And, and, and if I could give any advice to you, even though you didn't ask, I would I, tell you, I, I'll take all the advice. <laughs> I, that's what I would tell you. Be yeah. true to who you are. The opportunities will come. The money will be there, but don't sacrifice your core values, the direction you want to go and the effect you want to have in this world because of 
some opportunity that seems on the surface like it's going to pay off in the end because it just may not. And frankly, you have to be willing to take risks and endure some of the, the sacrifice you've already endured for a bit longer. One of the reasons that we started our law, our law firm right out of law school is because much like you just said, we were already poor. We looked at each other and we're like, look, we've already been poor for three years. What's another three years? Like it, it just didn't, it didn't stop us from doing that. And I have people now, friends that have been practicing for 15 years that would love to go have their own firm, but now they're so comfortable with what they're making. They can't ever take a step back and, and start over or even start from a different financial standpoint because of, of the fact they have grown accustomed to making a certain amount of money each year. And, and there's a huge sacrifice when you go work for yourself. We came out of school broke. So we just yeah. were broke for a bit longer and, and it paid off for us, you know, fortunately. But before yeah. I let you go, one, I want to thank you for joining thank, yeah. me. I really appreciate, you're a, a terrific guest and I wish you all the success in this profession. But do you have any questions that I can answer for you? Uh, well, so it, I, I've been doing a lot of informational interviews right now. So um, I've been reaching out to everybody that I know. So I guess like I, I do have lots of questions. Sure. Um, I mean, I, if you've answered this on your podcast, I can, I can definitely go listen. Um, but like, can you, like, like I said, I wanted to be a public defender. That was all I saw. And now I'm at this point where I need to reevaluate. I need to open up my eyes a little bit, a little bigger. So um, when you graduated, you started your firm. Um, what, why, why did you decide to start a firm instead of taking um, like an associate job somewhere? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, when I had went to law school, I was already in my thirties. And I, much like you, leveraged a huge chunk of money to go to law school. Because one of the things I think that people forget is not only is there a cost to law school, there's a lost opportunity when you go to law school. And I worked in sales too. We have a very similar uh, background. So I, I calculated all the money I could have made during the three years I was in law school and then added in the cost of law school. And that's what I tell people I invested in law school. So it was a half a million dollar investment for me. I said, I kid you not, I gave up $500,000 in what I could have made over that three years to go to law school. That includes the cost of law school, of course, but mm -hmm. that is a real number that I looked at. And I said, how do I come out of law school and make that money back as quickly as possible? How do I pay off my loans? How do I put myself in a position where I can resave for my college, my kids' college uh, education? And, and how can I give myself the the lifestyle that I'm, I'm hoping to achieve. And I landed on personal injury because it's the probably the highest risk, but highest reward area of law that I could find. It's very risky. It's very tough, but you can make quite a bit in this area of law. If you really are doing it for the right reasons, which is helping people not getting caught up in, I want to make a lot of money, but getting caught up in, I'm, I'm going to fight for the little guy. I grew yeah. up poor. No one was I grew up with a single mom, just like you. Like I said, we have a lot of similarities. I grew up believing that you're not limited by anything other than what you tell yourself you're limited by. But a lot of people don't have those lessons. A lot of people are like the, the mom and the kids that you, uh, you met at the Boys and Girls Club. They're, they just don't feel like anyone will give them a break or anyone will help them. And so I found the area where I could do that and also see some sort of financial gain from it. And when I identified that in law school, I looked around and I was like, well, I'm going to go work and make a bunch of money for someone else. I knew I was talented enough and smart enough to figure out how to make my practice go. 
Mm-hmm. I just needed to figure out how to apply the law to that practice and how to, how to make sure that we were treating clients fairly and doing the best for them. And, and then there was the, the real decision. Do we want to be broke for a little bit longer? Do we want to, to sacrifice for a little bit longer? A lot of people come out of law school, that student loan debt is real. That mm-hmm. like starvation and, and I don't mean starvation is in like being able to eat, but the idea of starving financially and not having, you know, the, just the basic things that we need as, as human beings, it's real. And so I don't fault any of my friends who took a job that paid $75,000 a year because they immediately started to see the fruits of their labor. I had to wait two to three years before, after law school, before I started to see anything, no, no money came in, no, no paycheck, no like actual dollars being taken by me personally. It was all just being poured back into the firm so that we could continue to evolve. And so when I, when I picked that area, it was a very conscious decision. It was a very purposeful decision. And I knew what I was getting into. I knew about the sacrifice that it would take to get where I wanted to go. So that's why I never wanted to go work for someone else. I was like, oh, I can do this. I can, I'm smart enough to talk to people. My sales yeah. background gave me the confidence that I could have a conversation with about anyone or with anyone about anything. It was just then making sure that I was smart enough to do the work that I was being hired to do. And, and that's where I relied on those mentors. And I knew there was enough people out there that would help me. I didn't have to go work for someone in order to gain that experience. Yeah. I think one of the things that I, that I'm more, most thankful for with my sales career is I'm not uncomfortable to talk to people about money. Like what's your budget? What do you have to spend? You know, like those, those questions that people feel uncomfortable about, I'm like very thankful that they don't make me uncomfortable. That's good. Cause that is a tough subject to talk about in life, not just in this yeah. profession, but in life, right? People, people shy away from money discussion. So it's good that you, you don't have that feeling. Cause I think it, it stops progress in a lot of situations where it, it shouldn't. Yeah. And as, so I I'm on, I'm looking for my next opportunity. And as somebody who's on the hiring side, what kinds of things do you look for in candidates or what, what are your turnoffs when you're looking at a new attorney or what are some, some common mistakes or what are some things that you see on your side that I, I could be aware of? Sure. And I'll, I'll tell you that we look at things a lot differently at our firm than what most employers might respond to that question with. I, for example, I think people might respond with, they want a certain level of experience. They want, you know, whatever. The problem with the experience thing is you're like I was when you kept left law school. How do you get experience unless someone gives you a chance to get experience? What are you supposed to go intern mm-hmm. for free for the next three years so you have some experience? I mean, yeah. there's there's got to be a balance there. So we don't look for experience at our firm. It's not important to us because a lot of the people that work at our firm outside of the four attorneys had no legal background at all. They came from all different professions, all different um all different experiences because we felt like they could, we could teach them to learn how we do the work that we wanted to do without being so, so like rigid in their experience level, meaning that they, they were a paralegal who went to paralegal school that then worked for a firm for 30 years and they know how to do this, this, and this. And we, that just isn't important to us. We can teach that. We can tell people how to conform to our system so that it makes sense but give them the freedom, the flexibility to be them and, and not be afraid to, to, you know, test the waters and try things. And I always say there, there isn't a mistake that you could make at our firm that I can't fix. I mean, there are some exceptions, as you know, there are, <laughs> there are legal exceptions to that, but there are most, most of the time I really try to give all of my employees the freedom to say, make mistakes, take chances. We'll figure it out. As long as you're doing it with some goodness in your heart to further the client's case in some way to help them it's not just doing it for yourself, then you're going to be just fine. 
But to, to back up to your actual question, the candidates that we do look for, experience aside, because it's not important to us, they have to be outgoing. They have to be willing to be uncomfortable a lot. Because a lot of things we're learning, we're learning together or we're, we're learning as a team or self-discovery, you're learning yourself and then bringing it to the team. You have to be willing. Our firm is unique because we were remote from day one. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that we worked as a firm is because the overhead was ridiculously low. I didn't have a big fancy office downtown. I didn't have the, the expense that comes with some of those things. And so when I, when I built the firm, the first person who joined me was my paralegal. And I told her, I said, look, you got to work from home. And she's like, done. I'd love that. And this is back, <laughs> you got to go back to 2013 now, right? You're not, this is not now. And, and so when COVID hit, we didn't, we didn't skip a beat. We didn't have any, yeah. any issues there at all because we were already doing it. The biggest complaint that I get, I, I wouldn't even call it a complaint. The biggest like thing that I hear after we conclude a client's representation is, I wish I would have got to meet you in person. If that's their biggest issue, I can live with that. And yeah. we don't we don't shy away from meeting people. Look, we have three offices, one here in Phoenix, one in Denver, and one in San Diego. I'm licensed in all three states. And I've met clients at our offices in all three states. Our offices are virtual offices where we just schedule a conference room and mm -hmm. we can sit down and talk to our clients that way. We get mail there and we have, you know, people answering the phones there. But we don't need to be manning those offices and wasting the expense of all that office space for the sake of showing the client that we are, I don't know, we have these big fancy bookshelves. And I just don't think that matters. We pour those resources yeah. back into our clients and their cases, and we spend yeah. more time working because we do work remotely. So we're looking for people who are comfortable in that. I've, I've hired people. We don't have a lot of turnover. We haven't had a lot of turnover, turnover at our firm, but yeah. the people who have left, it's just not the right environment for them. And I don't fault people for that. There, are, there was a young attorney, not unlike yourself, who I had this conversation with. We actually met for coffee. And he told me, he said, look, I think that in order to get experience, I need to have someone down the hall for me. I need to be able to walk into their office and show them something I'm working on and say, no, correct it this way, do that. And I said, we're never going to have that opportunity for you. That's not what we do. And so we decided together, it was mutual, that it just wasn't going to be a good situation. But when I say you have to be comfortable working on your own, you're not on your own. We do zoom calls all day long. We're chatting with yeah, each other yeah. all day long, but you are still on your own. It's not like the community workspace and our lead litigation attorney who handles all of our litigation work came from a big firm with a huge office with hundreds of people in it. It took him a while to adjust. He would tell you if he was on this podcast, it took him a bit to adjust to this way of practicing law because it is a bit unique. And, and I don't mean unique because we're working from home. Everyone seems to be working from home now, but a lot of people are craving the opportunity to go back into an office, to be with other people. Uh, none of the people that work with us feel that they, yeah, they are very, yeah, they're <laughs> very comfortable not doing that. So I would say, and I, we're probably a very different type of employer, mm -hmm. but as a, as a potential candidate, I would be more concerned with you not finding the right opportunity for yourself because you just want to find an opportunity for yourself. 
And, and yeah. you know, I can't answer that for you. Obviously you have to answer that for yourself, but I would try to flush that out in an interview, right? I try to say, well, tell me what you want to do. And if you told me I wanted to be a PD, I'd ask you, Twyla, why are you interviewing at a personal injury firm? And you say, well, yeah. you know, I'm just kind of, I want to broaden my, my search a little bit and I want to look for other opportunities. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I would probably question why you're, you're, you're not holding on to that desire if there's something closer to that type of work that could be a fit for you, you know, is that the direction you should be going? I, I would try to flush that out because as an employer, I want to hire people for, uh, this is, this should be their forever job. And I, and I really mean that I, I just celebrated, look, we're eight years old as a firm. We have three employees that have been with me over five years. I mean, they, yeah. we give a plaque to everyone who's been with us over five years. And my wife said the other day, she's like, your team just doesn't leave. And I'm like, and it's not like I don't overpay. It's not that it's not some like secret. It's just there. We're good people working with good people. Our clients are good people and we're trying to help. And we just really enjoy each other and we do hard work and we're all self-motivated. So we try to identify those qualities in the people that we hire. But I, I guess to really answer your question concisely, I would say be you because you can't change who you are. And if you do to a potential place that you want to work, those true like colors or the true version of Twyla is going to come out anyway. And then you're going to hit this like weird crossroad where you're going to say either this isn't where I want to be, or they're going to tell you this isn't where you should be. And so yeah. don't sacrifice who you are, not even the opportunity, but who you are in order to please some employer. I mean, there are a lot of opportunities out there. There will always be, even now, even in our strange COVID times, there are, there are opportunities and there will continue to be. So don't get, don't get so caught up in trying to conform to the person you're interviewing with. Just be you and be honest and you're likable and, and be likable and use your, use your sales background, which you know is very, very important to read the situation and, yeah. and do what you need to do to kind of get yourself in a, in a good place. And that'll make you bubble up to the surface and be that candidate who sticks out. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. What else? Um, like, I mean, one, one thing that I've like been curious about is like looking for like, um, like I I'm looking for opportunities right now. So like kind of the, like what, how, how do you, where, how do you get your opportunities out? How, like, where should I be looking? Like, what should I be doing every day to make sure that I'm hitting everything and making sure that I'm seeing everything that's out there? Cause one thing I think about is like, maybe I missed that one website that everybody is posting jobs on. So like, what, how do you find your candidates and how do you, how do you put the, put the notice out there? Sure. So there are the normal websites like indeed, right. Mm -hmm. That we post on from time to time, but really we want referrals from others in the profession because mm -hmm. it leads to I think a more healthier relationship than just someone who's just throwing the resume out to everyone trying to get a look. This is when yeah. you're getting referred, you're, you're someone that is probably either important to the person that's referring you, or at least you've made an impact on them in some way that they're willing to say, Hey, I think you should talk to this person. So for example, and I know this is true with almost every area of law, there are these different groups or associations. We call it in ours, the plaintiff's bar, which is just the group of people that do the work that we do. And we have listservs, which are huge email threads where we post about all sorts of things. Like there may be a weird issue in a case and you may post about it and then 15 attorneys respond and they say, this is what you should do. 
there are within those listservs, there are from time to time recommendations made about different people looking for opportunities. It exists across the board. It exists with the public defenders. It exists with family law attorneys. It exists with uh, people working in um, the public sector. If you identify people in those different areas of law, ask them to recommend you and just say, would you be willing to recommend me to your colleagues in any capacity? And maybe it's word of mouth, but a lot of these people have these same email listservs where they could just send an email out and say, hey, look, here's the resume for Twyla Haggerty. Um, Got to have a, a nice conversation with her. I, I think you should take a look and she may be a good fit for you. You know, she just finished law school, but she passed the bar and, and she's eager and, and wants to work. You'd be surprised how many people pick up on that because in our plaintiff's bar, there are thousands of people. So you all of a sudden have all this huge network of people that are practicing, that are looking for good help that may be uh, providing opportunities that you would otherwise wouldn't find on Indeed. You wouldn't find through your traditional uh, searches. But the other thing, Pam at ASU, I go back to her. We talk a lot is how I found you to do this podcast because I ask her questions all the time. I need someone for this. I need someone for that. Or I'm looking to bring on a law clerk. You got anyone uh, who's a 2L that may want some experience. And, and so go back and stay in touch with the law school. Make sure Career Services knows who you are. Make sure they're, they're talking to the community because a lot of employers, especially public employers, will go to the law school first in Career Services outside of just posting it. They will post it because a lot of times they have to, but they want a group of candidates that come from recommendations as well. And they get those by going directly to the law school. So make sure you're talking to career services that you're, they're aware of you, you're aware of them. You're, you're consistent in your dialogue. You're sending emails or, or calling every so often just saying, Hey, just checking in. I'm still looking and just want you to know that if anyone calls and has interest, I would love to chat with them or take someone to coffee. And then I think the last thing would be, don't be so confined by the traditional model of what it, it might mean in your head to go be an attorney. And, and what, I, what I'm saying there is there are partnership tracks at big firms. There are opportunities to work in small firms like mine, and there's everything in between. But don't get caught up in, I have to go work for a firm that's going to hire me with the benefits package and two weeks of vacation. And if I don't get that, then I'm, I'm not going to go work somewhere. Spend this time as you're looking and searching and as, as you have the time, shadowing people, calling attorneys. Like you could call the PD's office. I, I'm almost positive. I don't work for them, but I'm almost positive they would do this and say, look, I'm really interested in working for you guys. I understand you're on a hiring freeze, but I have my license and I'd love to shadow one of your attorneys. I'm, I'm not asking for an internship. I'm not asking for anything special. I just would love to come down and, and spend maybe a few days working with one of your attorneys and seeing the, the caseload and how they do things. And, you know, there, I know there are some attorney client privilege things they'd have to work through with you, but I don't think they would be opposed to that. I say that without knowing this for sure, but at least in the private sector, there's a lot of attorneys that would do that and just say, I want to learn more about your practice. I'm willing to give you a day. Uh, I'm willing to come down. Some might see it as a nuisance. Others may embrace it and say, look, I love law students that are that are willing to take an alternative route to try to find their opportunities. Because if you make an impression on someone, they'll sing your praises to everyone else. And if you want to work in the PD's office to stick with that example, and you go shadow an attorney and he or she says, Oh my gosh, I got to spend a few days with this uh, Twyla Haggerty. She's good. She's going to, she's going to make it a dent when we open up 
and they may even put you on a hot list that says, as soon as we open up that hiring freeze, I'm going to send you a note so you can apply. I'm going to send you some sort of correspondence. It just could lead to, to opportunities that weren't there. So don't be afraid to take those non-alternative, or I should say, don't be afraid to take alternative, non-traditional paths to try to get where you're going and talk to people and reach out. And, and you'd be surprised. Hey, the one thing people have right now is time. Now, I know it's not traditional in the sense that you could go down to an office because sometimes people are not allowing that, but it's even this, it's even volunteering to do a podcast and saying, look, I'll, I'll have a conversation about my experience just because I want to meet more attorneys. I want to talk to people. I want people to know who I am and, and trying to engage in different ways of getting your name known in the community, especially in those areas where there are still a lot of, there's still a lot of need. I mean, look, I, I did an internship for victim services when I was in law school, my third year, they are victim advocates for victims of crimes. And their office has attorneys that represent victim rights because the Arizona constitution allows for and has a provision for victims rights when you are the victim of a crime or the family member of a victim of a crime. And I got to, through that internship, go all the way through a capital murder trial. And it was the most fascinating experience. Now that was a traditional law school internship. But they even said after I graduated, they were like, hey, if you ever want to come back and do some work with us, we'd love to have you back. Because a lot of it is just to use what you said earlier, it's putting the counseling in counselor of law. It was really just counseling these people that have been just absolutely destroyed by some sort of criminal activity, whether it, it, it you know, is a murder, whether it's you know, a rape, whether it's something even less damaging like a theft. But they, they need someone to help them and, and hold their hands. And this, this office, that's all they're tasked with doing is, is supporting these people. And so they were like, if you ever want to come back and, and do work, you know, we don't have a budget to hire you, but we certainly welcome your, um, your, your hands and your resources. You know, at that point I was off to starting my own firm, so I wasn't able to do it, but I know those opportunities exist. It's just looking kind of under every rock. It's like sales. I used to tell, I ran a sales team of I think a couple dozen people at one point, And I used to tell them in our general staff meetings, I say, turn over every rock. Quick story. I'm just yeah. going to tell you this because I think it's fun. <laughs> I, I had a rock on my desk and I would say, turn over every rock. I had taped a hundred dollar bill underneath that rock. The only person who knew about it was the owner of the company. And I was, and I would always say in our meetings, turn over every rock. And I was waiting for someone to walk into my office and turn over the rock. Eventually, Someone made a joke about, I know, I know, God, we were talking about her performance. And she's like, I know, I know, I need to turn over more rocks. And she picks up the rock. And I just got this big smile. And I was like, <laughs> finally, that's been there for like a year. And so she got to keep the $100. But that's what I mean by turn over every rock is don't take things for granted. Don't take conversations like these or others for granted. They can lead to something that turns out to be a great opportunity for you. Yeah. That's, I, um, I, another thing I gained from sales is um, it's easy for me to hear no. <laughs> like. No's a challenge, Twyla. Yeah. No's not no. No's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I love one of my one of my goals when I was pitching was to get to the ask without any objections because I was good at identifying the objections along the way. Where when someone's like, mm, be like, oh, what's that about? Like, what's going on there? Like, you get. I mean, you, you get don't it. Like what I just showed you. Yeah, you <laughs> get it. So use those same traits and skills and techniques that you learned in your pursuit in this profession. The difference is instead of selling a service or a product, you're now selling you, which is yeah. probably a little bit easier in a way. Oh, it's, it's been a little hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you all the stats and figures for advertising programs, but sometimes I'm like, 
I think I'm kind of cool sometimes. <laughs> I think it's be, fun to hang out with me a little bit. Be more confident. Just be like, look, I, I know that I can help grow your firm, grow your department, you know, add to what you guys are doing. And just, you got to believe it. I know it, it's like dating or anything else, right? You're, you're your own worst critic. You, you are certainly going to uh, beat yourself up more than anyone else does. But in this case, you really need to believe that, that you're an asset that you can add to whatever opportunity, you know, is presented to you and, and just treat it that way. It, it, there's the difference between cocky and confidence, right? And having mm-hmm. confidence and just knowing, look, I, I can do the work. I'm going to need a little help to get started because I'm, I'm coming out fresh, but I'm eager to learn. I'm ready to learn. And, you know, I don't mind kind of figuring some of this stuff out slowly as we, as we progress, because I understand the complexities of our environment right now and what's happening with COVID and, and the, the challenges there, but I'm ready to go. And, and I think you would, you'd be, you know, making a mistake not to consider me. And I know that sounds tough to say. It's probably easier for me and you to say that than actually say that in an interview, but maybe you'll think of a more tactful way to say that. Yeah. I mean, those are all the questions I have for right now. I know more are going to come up, so I'll definitely reach out. (laughs) Well, please do. Yeah, Yeah, please do. And I have your email. What I'm going to do is I'm going to post this podcast in about hopefully the next um, 30 minutes or so. I just have to add an intro and an exit to it. And then it'll be live. I will send you the link to your email so that you have it. You have my contact information. So don't ever hesitate to reach out if you have any questions or just want to chat further. I really enjoyed uh, this podcast and thank you for being my guest. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun.